Welcome to Real Estate Investing Abundance, the show for busy, fulfilled professionals like you to learn how to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. Now, here is your host, Dr. Alan Lomax. Hello, enlightened investors. So happy to be back with you today as we explore scaling at speed and how to grow our multifamily syndications quickly. The founder of Blue Lake Capital, Ellie Perlman, with a diverse and international background to be envied, has over a decade of experience in real estate investment, law, and property management. Under Ellie's leadership, Blue Lake Capital owns and manages over 3,350 multifamily units across the United States, valued at over $750 million. So, Ellie, take us into the show and share words that helped you to be who you are today. Yeah. Hey, Alan. Very happy to be here. The experience that helped me get to where I am today, and I started as a real estate attorney. And I say that I started as an attorney, but there's a lot of years before that happened where I was um, working very hard to get into that position that I was, that would be able to get into law school and graduate. But I worked as an attorney and I realized pretty quickly that I wanted to be my my clients. I wanted to be the one buying real estate. I did not want to draft contracts. I did not want to represent clients in courts and you know, do all the things that kind of I felt like I was a second chair. And I wanted to be, I wanted to lead those transactions. And so, you know, at some point I transitioned from law to property management. And I remember some people were raising an eyebrow and said, you're going to be a property manager. I mean, it's much more lucrative to be an attorney, I said, yeah, in, a, in the short term, you're right, but not in the long term. And so, I, you know, I wanted to learn how to manage assets, how to manage commercial tenants and, and, and residential tenants. And so I became a property manager and um, that was that was kind of the second phase in my real estate you know, career. And all of that happened in Israel. I don't know if you can hear from my accent, but I'm Israeli. And um, when I was about 32 years old, I decided to move to the U.S. I wanted to learn how to buy real estate, how to manage companies, how to build companies. And so I went to MIT. I got my MBA degree in 2016. When I graduated, I um, moved to California and, you know, shortly after opened, uh, you know, started Lulay Capital. And until today, we buy multifamily assets. And we're working with investors, with uh, private funds, high net worth individuals, family offices. And so together, we buy assets. We manage those assets for investors and, you know, sell the assets after three to five years. So, you know, that's all we're, we do today. And kind of that's a very kind of short, uh, you know, description of how I got to where I am today. Wow, what a fabulous and comprehensive background you have, and such thorough uh, preparation to go into uh, real estate investing. Why did you select one of the most expensive markets in the country to settle in? That's a very good question. <laughs> um, I think you know I was actually traumatized from the hard winter. Um, if you lived in New York or Boston 2014, 2015, it was uh, an all-time record. You know, the, the winter was, you know, especially challenging and the amount of snow, I've never seen so much snow in my life and it was extremely cold. And so I wanted to be, it was 
pretty much my decision was weather driven. I wanted to be where the sun is. And I like the energy in California. I like the beaches, you know, the fact that it's very diverse. You have nature, you have um, entertainment, basically have everything. It's a very, very expensive, you know, state. And uh, I'm not a resident of California anymore, but it was, it was good for that time. You know, I learned, I learned a lot, you know, great yeah. food, weather, very interesting people, but that's what led me to California, mainly the weather. Yeah. Well, uh, it is a beautiful state in, in many, many respects. It's actually the state of my birth, uh, although I never lived there. I, I, I mean, I did for the first six months of my life, but, <laughs> but my parents yeah. moved to Colorado uh, when I was six months old. But Where I, were you but, born? I was born in, in, in Compton, Compton, California. So my dad was in the Air Force and, and uh, stationed close to there. So, uh, although he, he grew up there, actually, he was born and raised. And so my grandparents were there, and so I visited there. And many other reasons. I visited the state. I love it. I really born you, but I wouldn't want there. So, so you, but Israel, uh, Israel has some, I mean, they're, they're desert there, so they have some extreme weather, don't they? I don't guess they have a lot of snow, but it gets pretty cold there in the wintertime, does it not? Depends, maybe up north, but um, around Tel Aviv, where I used to live, it's it's pretty mild. Oh, really? Okay. Um, so I'm not used to snow. Uh, yeah. I remember <laughs> Cambridge. I looked at. I looked. I think it was on the twentieth, whatever floor, in in in. Uh, I rented a an apartment, and I was. I looked down, stay down from the window, and I saw someone skiing in the street. <laughs> it was that extreme. <laughs> The train was shut off. I mean, everything oh, wow. was, I think it was the first time in a hundred years or so that MIT was closed. It, oh, it wow. never happened before. It was yeah. very, very extreme. And uh, we were told not to drive. It was And I learned for the first time how to drive in a snow blizzard because I, I had to. I had to service my car before a, a ski trip. So that was scary and probably not the smartest thing I've done. <laughs> but it was pretty traumatic. And so... Yeah. 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 Well, that, that, that would be um, quite a shift then. Um, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, well, anyway, fascinating things to talk about, uh, Ellie, but let's get into real estate since that's yeah. what we're here for today. So, how to dream boldly and execute on it? How to dream boldly? I think it all comes, it starts and ends with your mindset. And the one thing that I've noticed just by looking at very, very successful entrepreneurs and businessmen, I'm, I'm fascinated with patterns because I think there's a lot of power to data. And when I was looking at a younger age, all the wealthy people that I knew, they all had one thing in common and, and that was real estate. And so. That's one thing that I've noticed. The second thing that I've noticed is, and that relates, goes, you know, back to your question about how to dream, you know, big, how to dream boldly. They were, they were comfortable with uncertainty. And that's what separates, I believe, the 1% or the wealthy from everyone else. Most people, before they open a business or before they invest in a significant amount of money, they want, they feel comfortable if they, if they have a high, you know, if they're, if they're, if they know what is the likely, a high likelihood of a certain outcome, you know, 80, 90%, whatever you feel is, is that spot for you. And if there's uncertainty, they're not willing and not comfortable moving forward. And for a lot of the people that I saw around me that were very successful, they were 
they were comfortable with uncertainty. They were comfortable not knowing everything there is to know when they first took the first, you know, when they took the first mm-hmm. couple of steps in an investment, business, you know, venture, whatever that was. They were comfortable with being uncomfortable and with saying, we're going to figure it out as we go. So, you know, I can share an anecdote about that, just an example. Um, when COVID hit, we decided to keep buying. I thought it was a great opportunity because all the other competition that basically disappeared as a buyer, they were not, all of a sudden I was not competing almost with oh. anyone. And I said, wow, that's a great opportunity. And what I was not sure of is, What's investors' appetite? Are they going to invest? Are they going to feel comfortable writing a check? And that was before everyone knew that, uh, understood uh, in late 2020, that actually multifamily is going to do just fine. It's actually the the, the best uh, investment vehicle, you know, to at that point. And I was comfortable taking the risk. And when we're talking about deposits, non-refundable deposits that can range up to two, three million dollars, I was okay taking that risk, not knowing if we can actually raise the amount of money. It was actually the biggest raise we've had until that point. Uh And it was very uncomfortable. Uh It it was, we didn't, we weren't sure. And I said, you know what, I'm comfortable taking that risk and we're going to figure it out. And we did. And that theme, that's part of dreaming, you know, being bold and dreaming big being comfortable with not knowing exactly how you're going to do it and be certain in your abilities to figure it out one way or the other. I think that, you know, that has to be an, an important concept there. And yet, it, you before you took the leap into real estate, you had a much, much, much more powerful, much stronger, much, much more well-developed background than what most people can go into real estate have. So did you always have this mindset of I've got to to be comfortable with uncertainty? Because it seems to me like you were padding your nest with all kinds of certainty before you actually made that leap. I actually don't think there was a lot of certainty there because nobody teaches you how to raise money and how to speak to investors. Actually managing an asset, knowing how to buy right. Yeah. It, you know, I took an underwriting class at MIT, but it wasn't, there's a, there's a huge gap between what they teach you, you know, in school and what's yeah. happening uh, in real life. And so I actually took a mentor to help me learn how to do, um, how to start, you know, the yeah. real estate business. So there was a lot of uncertainty, but, you know, even until that point, when I went to MIT, I was broke. I had no money and I actually took a $200,000 loan, which was a huge amount. Wow. Still is a big yeah. amount. And I remember people around me saying, you were crazy. You can buy, that's a down payment for a house or, or 50% of, what are you doing? Yeah. And you might not be able to recoup that investment. And I said, I know, and I didn't really know, but I convinced myself. I said, I know that it's going to pay off. I'm going to be fine. And, uh-huh. you know, and I was, I think maybe it's part of your personality that you're, you know, I'm, I'm always looking at the glass half full. And I believe that. This, you know, if I have a very good sense and vision of what's going to happen many, many times, that's what's going to happen. And it's not, it's not uh-huh. magic. You can talk about the energetical, you know, energy and, and other things that I'm not going to get into it. But when you decide something, regardless of how much education or certainty you have, when you decide that something's going to happen, you're actually, and you're communicating this with others, 
you and them are starting to behave consciously and unconsciously in a way that is going to put you there eventually. And so I don't I actually don't think I had a lot of, you know, certainty, but even now with what we're planning, you know, I'm planning to grow the company and uh, and I'm investing a lot of my money back in the company. There's a lot of uncertainty that may not work and I'm going to lose a lot of money, but I've decided that it will work and I'm doing whatever I can to make it work. And there's a lot of uncertainty there. And you can say, hey, we're technically in a recession. You know, that's a big question, whether we are or not, which I think we are. Is it the right time to expand? A lot of uncertainty there, but I'm comfortable with with that because I think the opportunity cost of not moving forward is much bigger than the the cost, you know, in case I'm actually wrong and it's going to be, you know, the wrong kind of investment at this point. So I hope that that answered your question. Yeah, very, very interesting uh, there, Ellie. So thanks for sharing that. Can you talk us through that first leap into real estate after you'd finished at MIT and you moved to California, putting your company together, making those first steps into business? And certainly uh, there had to be a, a lot of uncertainty there. But what all was going on? So um, actually, when I graduated, I went to work for a tech company uh, for about a year. And my team was disassembled. It was the company was not, you know, doing that well. And they've decided to, you know, send everyone home, at least in my my uh, team. And yeah, I was doing business operations and they thought that it was not it wasn't necessary to have us around. And I remember, you know, interviewing for other companies and and um mm-hmm. at some point I said, you know what? If I should start my own thing. And I had, you know, I had a loan to pay. I had, you know, I had a lease, a car lease that I had to pay. I had other things that I was in and I had no no income. And that was pretty scary. And I've decided to take the leap and invest in myself. I borrowed some money and I said, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to start, but I'm going to get educated and I'm going to pay someone. And I remember before I took the loan, after I paid... My my mentor at the time, I had about two hundred dollars left in my account, and oh, I said, wow. "I need to borrow some money so I can start hiring people, um, traveling, meeting investors, meeting you know, going to conferences, learning what I can." And um, that's you know, that was kind of my my journey, and it was it was uh, a bit scary, I have to say, because for the first time, I was making a six figure salary, and so to say goodbye to this because I knew I could have gotten another job. You know, very high, you know, high paying job, but I decided not to. So, you know, first couple of years, you don't make much. And, uh, and I kept borrowing money to be able to, um, to pay for software and travel and, and, you know, employees and whatever I needed to do. But like any investment at some point, it, it may, you know, pay off and, and that's what happened, but could have gone the other way. Oh, absolutely. Well, that took a lot of courage uh, to be certain and to keep borrowing on top of borrowing uh, with uh, with no income coming in. That had to be extraordinarily stressful. We'll talk about about that first capital raise. How did you do that? With clearly more liabilities to your name, at least financially, you had some very good credentials behind you, didn't have financial assets backing you yeah you know it's a very interesting question because i found a way for every you know problem there's a solution the question is how easy it is for us to see it and so for me 
you know, I I was unable to get a deal on my own, um, especially not guaranteeing anything. I did have any, my net worth was probably negative at that point. And I said, you know, how can I get, how can I dip my toe in the water? How can I get started? And I actually, I partnered with someone that had the net worth and liquidity that had the ability to raise money and to do everything basically. And I found a way to add value to that company, to that person. And that's how I got started. And, you know, part of me always wanted to do things on my own and start right away and control the deal and run it from start to finish. But this is the ego speaking, saying you need to be in control. You need to run everything. This is, you know, your company. You need to run the show. And in business, I'm doing my best to take emotions aside, whether it's fear, sadness, excitement, even um, in the ego, I'm trying to put them on mute because every time there was ego involved, the deal went sideways or there was an issue that costs us a lot of money to fix. And I tend to partner with people and, and also my investors, most of them very easygoing, you know, trusting, just good people, great people. And I'm trying to, even with, you know, business partners, I'm trying to have the same kind of, uh, the same theme. And so uh-huh. when I'm, when I put my ego aside, I realized you got, you know, if you want to do a large deal, it'll be easier for you to partner. So you're not going to manage the deal from start to finish and that's okay. And the funny thing is, you know, I, I went to my father-in-law and I said, Hey, I'm starting real estate. You know, I'm, I'm starting real estate, real estate investing, you know, company and I'm going to buy multifamily assets and, you know, I'm, I, I want you to invest with me. And he looked at me and he said, why would I invest with you? I've been investing with, you know, certain company that he mentioned. They've been around for 30 years. They've been providing me with, you know, great returns. Why would I take a chance? And so I I had to convince him that he want that he that he should be betting on me as well. And you know, he owned a certain business and I told him, listen, I, I'm like you 30, 40 years ago when you started, you were competing against the big guys, and that's me right now competing against the big guys. And he said, You know what? Let me let me think about it. And you know, he came back the next day and said, Okay, I'll invest something with you and he was my first investor which i'm very grateful for and and i'm grateful that he didn't just write me a check but he said you know what you know i don't know should i i mean it's it's a business doing a decision after all and but but that's how i started i basically Uh i didn't have i think he was the only person that i actually knew that invested everyone else came through you know marketing social media speaking engagements people that you know i haven't met before some of them became my friends my early investors, you know, some of them are close friends of mine today. But that's how I started. I found someone that needed some help. I found what they needed. And so, you know, it could be that you, you're partnering, you know, maybe you can bring deals or, you know, maybe you can bring relationships to the table or whatever that is. There's always something that someone needs. Doesn't matter Never how hung. big or small they are. There's always that one thing and you just need to find it and find what's what your value is and that's how you can get into the industry and make business what was the value that added that you added to that first partnership and so for that partnership you know some of it we were actually looking at a very similar deal uh, at the same deal and so i had you know some knowledge about the deal um because we were actually my team was underwriting it but uh when it comes to you know it could be anything it could be management equity whatever that is uh, you can find a way, you know, to add value. And we just found what 
you know, he needed at that point. But, you know, these things, they don't happen in a vacuum. And so it takes time to build those relationships. It takes time to meet people, talk with them. It's just like dating. Nobody, or at least someone that I know, is getting married after the first date. It takes time. It takes time. It can take three, six months, 12, 18 months until you're ready to do, to make that move in people's and groups' needs change over time. And so you got to, you know, keep those relationships going, keep conversations going and not give up. If it doesn't work, because at some point it will work. Uh-huh. And yeah, it works sometimes in one situation and not another. And and yeah. that's just the way it goes. Yeah, it would be nice if we could just snap our fingers and everything comes together. But it's, <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't work that way, does it? Um, did, yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of things we could go into, but we're running out of time here. So uh, talk to us just a little bit here and real quickly about sourcing off-market uh, property. Yes. Yeah, and you know what? This is kind of the, that's what everyone wants. Everyone wants an off-market deal. Depending on the deal size, that could be very hard. So for us, some parts of the cycle, when this, when real estate is very, let's say a year ago, it was very, very solid, low cap rates, very hard to find a $100 million deal that is off-market because those owners are very sophisticated, large corporations. They don't, they, they're not in a rush to sell. They go through the same process. They market the deals. So that's, that's one challenge that it's very hard to find, you know, those, uh, those deals. If you're buying smaller assets, 5 million, 10, 20, then you do, you know, it's possible that it was owned by, you know, a doctor or a lawyer yeah. that bought it years ago and now wants to sell it quickly, doesn't want the publicity there. You know, they they know that once it's in, you know, in it's marketed and it gets a lot of eyes and they want to be you know, keep it private. So it, it depends on, on the deal size. Today, I can tell you that we have a lot more off-market deals that we're looking at because sellers still remember what they could have potentially get for the assets that they put them in the market six months ago, let's say, or a year ago. And it's very hard for them to say goodbye to, sometimes we look at the numbers, you know, we, we bought an asset that with a different cap rate would have been 10 million, 8 million more. Oh, and no. so sometimes sellers would go off market even for very large deals just to test it out and see if they can hit the number that they want. And if they do, fine. If they cannot, then they'll wait until the market stabilizes a bit and then they're going to put it back in the market, you know, and then market it. But they don't want the bad publicity of trying to sell something just to pull it off market and then put it back in the market a year later, six months later, just going to make it, it, it doesn't look good. And it raises some, you know, red flags, even if they're not there. Buyers are questioning what happened. Why couldn't you sell it six months ago? It's not going to be as desirable as, hey, here's a brand new deal. Look at it. So right now, it's much easier to find those deals. And as you become more active, you're, you know, basically when there's an off-market deal, you're, you want to make sure that you're on the short, you know, the the first kind of three groups that the broker calls and says, hey, look at those deals. They're off-market and we know you can close, but you're one of the few groups that we called, you know. Tell us if you want it. And if not, then we're going to take it to market or we're going to, you know, maybe pause right now and revisit it six months, no. three months down the line. Yeah, because once it does go on market, I mean, there's always that record and can't erase it. So, yeah. Yeah. So that makes sense uh, why people would certainly do that. Well, Ellie, tell us uh, about your company and what it is that you have to offer our viewers and listeners. 
Sure. So you know, I think I mentioned at the beginning that we're multifamily owners and operators, and we like to buy Class B assets in very strong locations. So I'm always going to go for the asset that is in a strong location with a strong tenant base. And we normally, we buy assets when we see that the rents are under market and when we can renovate the units and then basically increase the income uh, by increasing rents. And so you know, generally speaking, that's what we've been doing. And um, our soft to date, the net IRR to investors has been 30.9% with about 1.7x in equity multiple. We, we like to buy assets for five years, but sometimes we'll exit early. And I think probably 36 to 48 months is our, or th- I'm sorry, 27 months should be our average hold time, uh, hold period, because if I can exit early, and exceed the returns that we've projected because I did not, I, I, I never put 30% IRR in front of my investors. Even if I see it on my end, I'm going to use a lower number. And of course, the past performance is not an indication of future, you know, success. Uh-huh. Anything can happen. It's an investment. It's you're being rewarded as an investor because you're willing to risk to take that risk that's not, that you may not you know, get to the projected returns. And right now we're actually, you know, we have a portfolio, two assets between uh, North Carolina and uh, in Georgia. So very, two very strong sub-markets um, in Atlanta and right outside the research triangle in North Carolina. And um, we're, it's, so 2022 is the last year that you can get 100% bonus depreciation. And maximize the tax benefit next year. It's going to go down to eighty percent, and then sixty. So, if you're interested, you know you can always go to info at bullake-capital.com for more information. But you know, I love those deals. I can tell you, uh, we were not the highest bid, and there were other reasons why we we got those deals. And so, I'm investing my money in those deals. It's great assets, very strong tenant based, and so um, that's what we you know right now we we are open for um, investment, and you know. I know I said I'm, um, earlier that I'm putting my emotions aside when it comes to real estate. Once I get under contract, I am excited. You know, once the opportunity is ours, it's uh, and that's what's you know happening here, basically. So yes, indeed, we're emotional people, whether we want to admit it or not. <laughs> 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 we can't. We're human. We can't leave those emotions yeah, behind. That's true. Well. Ellie, wonderful having been with you today. I'm delighted to have met you. Thanks for being on our show. And enlightened investors, once again, thanks for being with us and be with us again in our next episode. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for tuning in to Real Estate Investing Abundance, brought to you by Steve Talker Capital, a company working for passionate professionals like you to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. As part of our efforts to make the world a better place, Steve Talker Capital contributes to activities and organizations committed to better understand the equine. These endeavors attempt to enhance the human treatment of horses worldwide. Steve Talker Capital, working for a world where all creatures, great and small, flourish abundantly. For resources to develop your financial independence, connect with us at stevetalker.com.